Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 22nd of August, and this is Govind Raj Aitri Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital, and currently experiencing some very nice sunny days. Our top stories and themes for the day the much anticipated geo financial listing surprises markets, but this time on the downside. Why investors should not try and time market cycles and movements with HDFC Asset Management's Navneet Munot. The government's rapid fire responses to food prices going up. Finding the method in this madness with Siraj Hussain, former Agriculture Secretary. And hmm, SoftBank Investee Company founder is now on the run from the police. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. Ambani stock GeoFinancial hits the bosses. Shares of GeoFinancial Services, the demerged unit of Reliance Industries, listed at 262 rupees on the National Stock Exchange and 265 on the Bombay Stock Exchange on Monday, that's August 21st. With a market capitalization of 1.66 lakh crore rupees or 166,000 crore rupees or almost $20 billion, GeoFinancial Services is the second largest NBFC after Bajaj Finance. Bajaj Finance, as of August 18th, boasted of a market capitalization of 4.15 lakh crore rupees or 415,000 crore rupees. Bajaj Finserv, which has a market cap of 2.32 lakh crore rupees or 232,000 crore rupees, is more of a holding company than a non-bank financial company. After listing, the JFS stock, as we will call it now, went on a roller coaster ride and was locked at the 5% lower circuit when compared with a price of 261 rupees 85 paise, which was discovered during a special trading session on July 20th. The stock was finally locked down at 251 rupees 75 paise on the Bombay Stock Exchange. The Geo Financial stock has a 5% circuit filter and will remain for a few sessions. The listing of Geo is being watched for multiple reasons. First, of course, that it's been spun off from Reliance Industries in equal proportions. If you owned a share of Reliance Industries, you got a share of this financial company's stock. Second, it's largely expected to shake up the non-bank finance company space by taking on incumbents like Bajaj Finance. It also has the beginnings of a strong team led by former ICICI chairman K.B. Kamat and the market value that you see likely reflects all of this. Devin Choksi, market analyst, had earlier told me that he expected GeoFinancial to grow the market dramatically and he was not necessarily seeing it as a disruptor to existing companies. I will come to his projection in some more detail in a bit. Nevertheless, Geo did surprise everyone with its dramatic on-debut valuation, also reflecting the market's confidence in the Ambani's as backers. So what could the future of Geo look like and how ambitious could it get? And this is what analyst and Reliance Industries stock expert Devin Choksi told me a few weeks ago ahead of the listing. Uh, that must be a loaded question, going, I guess. <laughs> I would think that I think the financials would probably uh, surpass the existing Reliance uh, O2C business if they end up reporting the numbers which I have just now spelled out. Suppose if they end up reporting 10 lakh crore of the on book at the end of the fifth year from now. And on that alone, book, we end up reporting a name of around 80,000 crores to 1 lakh crore. My reading says that I think they would be far more exceeding the market value of the current reliance's O2C business, not the retail and the geo platform business, but only O2C business. The O2C business currently is being valued at around, in the current market price, being valued at 550 rupees. It is according to me, I think, is a very cheap discount. I think it should be eventually reporting at around 1250 rupees, the O2C business alone. But that's a separate subject that we can talk later on. 
I feel that I think the uh, you know geo platform or geo financial services right now is going to be the largest I think market cap provider going forward if they end up achieving the numbers which I am talking about. Meanwhile, broking firm Jefferies had put the net worth of JFS at twenty eight thousand crore rupees. Now this includes a six point one percent stake in Reliance Industries, which is a result of transfer of treasury stock from the parent. Jio has already announced a 50-50 joint venture with Blackstone to enter the asset management industry. Moving on from Jio and Reliance, around the markets, the BSE Sensex ended 267 points higher at 65,216 and the NSE Nifty 50 closed at 19,394, up 83 points. In other markets, we had earlier spoken of the rupee hitting a record low against the US dollar. Remember, it's now hovering in the 83 rupee range. It has since recovered somewhat, but despite the fall, it's still a favored emerging market currency with some investors, Bloomberg is reporting. Not just that, it is Asia's third best performer because others from the Singapore dollar to the South Korean won have slipped even more. A reserves stockpile of $600 billion, more than $16 billion worth of foreign inflows in stocks this year, and an economic growth forecast at 6.5% are among the reasons behind the optimism for investment banks like Newberger, Berman, Singapore, and Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Not only are the reserves high, but the overall external balances profile has improved in the last couple of years. Prashant Singh, Senior Portfolio Manager for Emerging Markets Debt at Newberger, Berman, Singapore, told Bloomberg. Now, back in the stock markets, the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index, which tracks Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong, slumped 1.9% to its lowest since November 21. The Hang Seng Index, which fell into a bear market on Friday, fell for the seventh straight day, the longest losing streak since November 2021, Bloomberg reported. Modern Portfolio Theory and its Usefulness Right Now In all this action, it can be safe to say that the Indian markets have paused to take a little breath. Now, how long? It's not clear. What is clear is that there are several factors at play. For one, many large brokerages have said that India earnings are now stretched and the initial benefits of lower input costs are beginning to fade. Equally, others like ICICI Securities have argued that the Nifty 50 index is consolidating just below the 20,000 mark and after rallying 14% from the March 23 lows, it's only a modest 7% year-to-date return. This, ICICI Securities says, indicates rational behaviour and is not technically a bull market either. On the other hand, there is a bull market frenzy that's visible in the mid, small and micro-cap indices which have risen 25 29 and 42% respectively from the same March 23 lows. Technically, a more than 20% upside indicates a bull market. So how should investors play it? Should one dump and run or stay put? Navneet Munot, Managing Director and CEO of HDFC Asset Management, which runs HDFC Mutual Funds, in a letter to unit holders of his fund last week wrote that over the past few months, quite a few investors, being wary of equity valuations, stayed on the sidelines, expecting an impending correction. However, the rally in equities continued unabated without taking a breather. Episodes like these show how investors often make the mistake of trying to time the market and asset class cycles when it is quite difficult for them to do so. The best way to avoid this predicament, he says, is to have a strategic diversification across asset classes and within equities across market cap segments and sectors. Trying to change lanes with a rear view mirror has historically turned out to be a costly exercise, he says. Monot, whose fund runs assets under management of close to 500,000 crore rupees, 
and over 11% of the mutual fund universe in India refers to the term modern portfolio theory to address this conundrum of what to do when at an investing crossroads. I caught up with him and I began by asking him to explain this approach, particularly to someone who's not an active investor or who wants to be one. Somebody who's known as the father of modern portfolio theory passed away some time back, Harry Markowitz. So I mentioned about that. Before them, we didn't have a sound theoretical framework of portfolio construction. People have been investing before, but investing always revolved around individual stocks. And you look at their net present value, winning life, what the return that individual security will generate. What the modern portfolio theory suggested was that people should look at a portfolio approach where you are trying to maximize return for a given level of expected risk or minimizing risk for a given level of expected return. And this efficient portfolio can be achieved if you are diversifying across securities which have a relatively low or, or a negative correlation. In, in simple terms, at different points in time, different asset classes will move differently. When equity markets are going up, you may have a situation where bond markets will be giving different kind of returns or within the equity market also across sectors, across market capitalization. If you have a more diversified portfolio, you would achieve a better risk-adjusted return. So providing that optimality or, or the risk-adjusted return was the emphasis of the modern portfolio theory. I mean, it's very elegant and there are a variety of other things in terms of security pricing, the efficient market hypothesis, so on and so forth. But what we try to cover in this letter is, is that. And this is obviously something that you're implementing or applying in your own approach to building portfolios. So if I were to start with 100 rupees and start as opposed to already invested in, how would I use this theory to actually invest? I mean, there are, of course, it may sound like a cliche, but there are thumb rules that one should have 100 minus age as the allocation to equity. The idea is that in your initial years where you have a long earning life, you can afford to take more risk and take higher volatility in the portfolio. And as you age, you need to have relatively less volatility in your portfolio and reduce the equity allocation. But each individual would be very different in terms of their return expectations, their risk appetite, their ability to take that volatility, liquidity preference, time horizon, so on and so forth. It, it will differ. So what mutual funds provide is that that asset allocation part, how to really allocate between different asset classes and within the asset class, different kind of securities makes it easier through the lot of hybrid funds which are available. So if you buy an aggressive hybrid fund, which is roughly two-third into equity and one-third into fixed income, you have automatically done your asset allocation by just investing in one fund. You've also talked about, you know, how investors maybe for fear or apprehension get out of the market or sell too soon. And then typically, at least as it's happened in India, the markets keep tending to appreciate. And I guess this is more about psychology than portfolio theory. But how would you address that in today's market? Interestingly, we talked about the modern portfolio theory. and when They talk about the risk and return. The risk they look at is volatility of returns. If a asset class or a security is more volatile, then it's more risky. But my point is actually the risk is possibility of losing capital. And if you are a very long-term investor, then volatility should not be considered as a major risk. In fact, you can take that as an advantage 
by investing in a systematic manner, which is the SIP tries to provide you, like the systematic investment planning, where through the rupee cost averaging, prices are lower, you are buying more units or the vice versa. So you can actually beat volatility and can take that as an advantage, can use that as an advantage favor in the long run. And, you know, within your own mutual fund, if you could use the illustration of one scheme, for example, how do you apply all of this to construct a portfolio or, uh, let's say, revitalize a portfolio at this point of time? I give you an example of, let's say, an aggressive hybrid fund, which invests roughly two-thirds in equity and one-third in fiction income and money market. And that would be an allocation, the typical asset allocation of an investor who has a moderate risk appetite and a moderate return expectation over a longer period. And there, as market goes up, if equity market goes up, what the fund manager will do is book profits to bring it back to that allocation and invest more in fixed income or the other way around when market goes down. So there is an automatic rebalancing of your portfolio that happens, which will be done by the fund manager rather than investor getting worried and then watching the market order on a day in and day out basis. And within the equity, you get allocation across large cap, mid cap, small cap. You get allocation across sectors. And within fixed income, you get to buy various securities. So you get a highly diversified portfolio by investing in one particular category of fund. Right. So right now, I mean, the market seems to have slightly maybe paused or read. And there are several factors playing, including, let's say, maybe a slight slowing of portfolio flows, some perception that the margin expansion may not be as strong as was earlier anticipated, and so on and so forth. So going by your approach, of course, these are part of any market that's constantly shifting and changing and so on. But how are you seeing some of these factors at this point of time? The market always likes more like a pendulum. They are never at a fair value. They would always move on on both sides. I think one needs to take a structural long-term view on the market. It's very difficult to predict the, the short-term market movement. Variety of factors impact the market, including the overall macro situation, direction of corporate profitability that you talked about, valuation, and last but not the least, liquidity or sentiment. I think for an average investor, the better way would be to keep investing on a systematic manner and as I said, that SIP makes it very, very easy for every investor that you keep participating in the market at all levels. Right. Uh, Navneet, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Where are food prices going and how? In the last few months, the government has intervened to bring down prices of a host of vegetables and cereals, including rice, wheat, tomatoes and onions. It has banned the export of non-basmati rice and now slapped a 40% export duty on onions. Elsewhere, according to reports, it's contemplating importing wheat in a higher quantity than one would expect. Exports of wheat are banned since last year in any case. The reason for these interventions is obviously runaway food inflation, particularly in cereals and pulses. A quick recap here. Vegetables inflation, which was in the deflation zone for 8 straight months, surged to 37% in July from minus 0.7% in June, led by a sharp rise in tomato prices. Inflation also accelerated in onions to about 11.7%. Inflation in cereals rose to 13% in July, thanks to accelerating inflation in rice, which has the highest weight amongst cereals. 
Inflation in pulses rose to about 13% as inflation picked up in Tour. That's 34% versus 27%. Milk is around 8.3%, a figure that stayed there for a while. To add some mirchi, as we say back home, inflation in spices too has accelerated to 21% in July from 19% in June. With prices zooming like this, how effective are the tools the government is using, which actually could appear a little knee-jerk at times? Between banning or inhibiting exports to increasing supply, what's worked better? To understand this, I reached out to Siraj Hussain, former Agriculture Secretary of the Government of India, and began by asking him what he felt about the government's responses at this point. So, first of all, we must recognize that the present government, that is the Modi government, has been very much focused on controlling food inflation. And even though the steps you have mentioned have been taken recently, but in 2022 itself, in August, the future trading in soybean was suspended. Then in December 2022, future trading in several other commodities was suspended for a year. And that has been extended in December 2022 for another year. So which means that the government has been tackling in its own way the challenge of food inflation. So the commodities you have mentioned are in two categories. One is perishable commodities and the other is non-perishable commodities. So the major concern is wheat and rice because these are staple diets. For vegetables, you know, the poor people can shift from one vegetable to another vegetable. But, you know, people like us make a lot of noise when tomato prices are high and so on. But for poor people, you know, they, they shift. So in case of wheat and rice, I think the major problem is the estimate of production. Now, the government estimate, for example, for wheat this year is about 112 million tons. The trade figures are much lower, somewhat nearer to 105, 106 million tons. Similarly, the consumption figures. You know, the debate in the last few years has been that the consumption of cereals has been going down, the consumption of proteins has been going up. But in the absence of any recent data of consumption expenditure survey, we don't know what is really happening. So the consumption figures are not known, the production figures are disputed. Similar is the case of rice production last year. Now, what is happening is that the government, in my view, took the right steps of, you know, suspending, banning the export of wheat. You know, the economists, my colleagues, you know, keep writing that, you know, you should do credit response and so on. But I do not think any government will wait for wheat prices to go too high. They are already in double digits. In fact, you know, we had written last year that the government action was already slightly delayed. So this is as far as the non-perishable commodities are concerned. And this year, the government's concern on rice is fully justified. We do not know what will happen. And I must say something about media going. Because most of the media always picks up the figures of monsoon is so much percent lower, so much percent higher. And that is not of very great consequence. What matters is the distribution of monsoon, the timely distribution, the spatial distribution of monsoon. So this year, while the overall figure may not look very bad, but eastern states are struggling. They are in very bad shape. So, all these things, I think, would have been considered by the government. And that is why they have taken this step of banning the export of non-Basmati rice. Having said this, the export of boiled rice is continuing. The export of Basmati is continuing. 
So now the objective of all of this is obviously to bring down prices or to keep them stable. Now that doesn't seem to have happened in either the case of wheat nor rice. No, you see the prices do not come down suddenly. Once the supplies improve, the expectation of prices going up improves, then you know the stockists who are keeping the stocks, they liquidate their stocks. So one problem is that the private stocks are not known to the government. We have been saying that the government should make it mandatory for all the warehouses to be registered with WDRA so that every warehouse issues an electronic negotiable warehouse receipt. So the private stocks are not known. But I think if these steps were not taken, then the prices would have risen much higher. And my contacts in the flour milling industry in Karnataka, for example, Bangalore. Bangalore is a very large consumer of wheat, for example. They tell me that now the availability has improved after this ban and the sale of extra wheat by FCI. You also asked me about the perishables. For perishable, the data of production is even more skewed. You know, the government, for example, does not only the sown area is known, but for example, what has happened to the crop in Himachal Pradesh, where so much of rains have damaged the crop. I have written an article on apples, which will hopefully come tomorrow. So these things need much more of technological input which has not really succeeded so far, Govind. Okay. So, last question. So, there are two tools, as I can see. One is duty on exports or, let's say, a ban on exports. And second is to import, uh, like in the case of wheat, or at least the threat of an import. The threat of import, for example, this time seems to be that we need only maybe three or four million tons, but we may actually import eight or nine million tons, which sends a signal of sorts to the market. Which of these tools, in your mind, is more efficient, if at all? You see, my view is, number one, the government should not import anything on its own account. The government has procured what is needed for the public distribution system and import of any commodity, large agricultural commodity by the government is very messy. I've handled that between 2006-2008 as Joint Secretary in the Ministry of Food. So what the government should be doing is to reduce the duty so that the private sector can import and imports can come to South Indian ports. It will not come to Mangalore because Mangalore to Bangalore connectivity is very poor. But it will come to other ports in South India. So the private flour mills, other bulk consumers will be able to import wheat at southern and western ports, Mundra, Kandla, etc. That will pull down the prices. As far as rice is concerned, rice cannot be imported because India is already 39-40% of the global market. So in case of rice, we have to wait for the monsoon to actually tell us what is going to happen. Because in many cases, I find that the reservoir levels are also lower, except in northwest India. So that will also have an impact on rubby crop. I think we need to wait for rice. But the government, in my view, was justified in taking these decisions. And onions was the last point. You see, onion and tomato are very highly perishable commodity. What we have been missing and, you know, expecting for several years is a technological breakthrough in the storage of onion. 60% of onion production is in grubby crop, which comes in between end of February to March. That is the crop which lasts till late Kharif crop, which will come in September, October. So the losses of that onion crop are very high. But we must remember, Govind, and this is something very interesting, due to these recent decisions on tomato and onion, the prices have come down and the farmers are already protesting. So, which means that when the prices go up, the consumers make a lot of noise on media here and there and therefore the government takes very drastic steps to bring down the prices 
and then the farmers say that you are harming us meanwhile as former agriculture secretary mr hussain pointed out farmers are now protesting the dramatic fall in prices for both tomatoes and onions tomato farmers in states like maharashtra have already started agitations and asking more to join in think about how wild the swing has been just in a month or so earlier the government had started buying tomatoes from farmers and sold them at lower prices and even imported some from nepal Speaking of exports, a flotilla of ships are stuck on both sides of the Panama Canal, waiting for weeks to cross after the waterways authorities cut transits to conserve water amidst a serious drought. The Wall Street Journal has reported. Vessel tracking data showed from last week that more than 200 ships were currently waiting to transit, a figure that's been climbing since the canal capped daily transits to 32 last month from an average 36 under normal conditions. and hmm the mumbai police's economic offences wing has lodged a first information report or fir and issued a lookout notice against rahul yadav and his colleague for allegedly cheating an advertising firm of more than 10 crore rupees the business standard is reporting rahul yadav is best known to dedicated trackers of the startup universe in india as the founder of housing.com He started the real estate advertising platform in 2012 and SoftBank, a firm that has claimed it would invest in companies that are at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence where they take over humans on the planet, invested 90 million dollars in 2014. The complainant in this case is Rajasthan-based Vikas Om Prakash Noval. The company in question is Yadav's company 4B Networks, which is a prop tech or property tech company with a platform that is supposed to enable, facilitate and empower brokers and developers. Amazingly, audit firm Deloitte was involved in housing.com too, though they came in after the party was over, so to speak, and an investor info edge appointed Deloitte as a forensic auditor. Well, that's it for me for today. Have a great day ahead. Do write in to us, send us your feedback, and let us know what you would like to hear on the core report on the week as well as the weekend edition. Bye for now. This was the core report with me Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector write to us at feedback@thecore.in at thank you for listening